You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to Episode 3 of the Crisis in the Church series. This week, we'll continue with Father Alexander Wiseman, looking at the remote background of the crisis in some more detail, exploring the philosophies of Immanuel Kant and René Descartes, as well as their errors. Father will discuss how these ideas from some centuries ago have not only influenced the Church, but have laid the groundwork for nearly all of our thinking today. Please help us by subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you're using. This helps more people to find our podcast. We're currently hovering around number 200 in most English-speaking countries in the Christian Catholic category. Your sharing and rating will help immensely. And if you want to see all of the episodes of this podcast, please visit our archives at sspxpodcast.com. Now, here's Father Wiseman. Back with another episode of the SSPX podcast, welcoming Father Wiseman again uh, for our second time talking about the remote backgrounds of the crisis. And uh, welcome, Father. Are you back in Richmond again for your uh, uh, for your circuit this weekend? That's right, Andrew. Back in Richmond. Very good. Very Here good. we are again. Well, we're recording on a Saturday, and just for our viewers as well, um, I'm recording this from my ho- from my house. So if you have a dog run in or if the kids are running in, uh, you know what? This is this is what we're doing today. <laughs> yep, that's right. And if if I have parishioners come in, then that's what's happening too. Fair enough. I'm at Richmond. So. Your family, my family, it, it works. Right. Great. Well. Could we start with uh, just kind of recapping uh, last week's um, episode a little bit, uh, part one, we talked about nominalism and Luther's thought, and then how that ties into what we're talking about this week, Father. Sure. So last time when we saw with um, Protestantism that started with Luther, and then also nominalism, we were choosing a couple of moments, we can say, uh, in history where a particular kind of thought started to develop. And I had noted last time that all of these three moments that we, we are, we're going to look at, the two last time and then Kant this time, they all have something in common, namely a kind of separation between what's outside of us and what we know. So no longer are we knowing what's outside. We're in some way uh, stuck in our own head, let's say, knowing only um, uh, what we can think about. And so that's going to be a kind of consistent, consistent point in these these three systems. So we saw last time uh, nominalism, which which kind of begins this process, Luther, who applies it in religion. And then this time, we're going to see Immanuel Kant, a German philosopher, who really takes it and, and systematizes the thought of Luther in what we might say a philosophically rigorous system. And that that system, if we want to use that word, is is going to become a kind of basis for even for the modern world today, but certainly for the crisis in the church. You mentioned last week that Kant was uh, raised in a pietist family. Um, how, I guess that maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but that that plays a big part in in his philosophies and how he's going to be thinking. Right. So that's actually a perfect place to start because a pietist pietism at the time was was a, a form of Lutheranism, and Lutheranism was obviously following Martin Luther, but if we can say that, it was already a toned-down version of Luther's thought. And that makes sense because it's it would be difficult to live the way Luther really lived if you're going to make this applicable to all people. So Lutheranism is already a toned-down version of Luther's thought. 
Pietism is going to be a particular uh, sect, we might say, a particular branch of Lutheranism. And certainly it was a, a, a religion which was very, very much stressing moral life and moral behavior. So in that sense, we're not really following Luther's sin boldly, uh, as we right. saw last time. Uh, Kant is not going to be an immoral man. He's going to be a very, a very moral, a very structured individual. Um, I also should mention, though, that Kant himself uh, studied in university. He studied the the empirical sciences, and maybe particularly he focused on um, Newton. So Newton's astronomy, which was obviously a big thing at that time, as as physics, the science of physics begins to shape up, begins to reform itself, and really take on a very a very, we might say, strong predictive power of explaining the phenomenon, the phenomena that we see in nature. So he was very much influenced by that. We'll see a little bit how that influences him uh, as we get into it. Um, I can say maybe too that the reason we've chosen Kant as kind of the third moment here is because, first of all, as I said a minute ago, it represents a systematization of Luther's own thought his own ideas. So Luther merely looked at religion, but Kant's going to take it into every area of life, even to do with our thinking, to do with how we act in uh, just by nature. So it's very important for us for that reason. Secondly, what I want to emphasize here too is that maybe most especially in the realm of ethics, so a question of morally good or morally evil action, what makes morality, what makes a good action, what makes a bad action, um, Kant's own thought really underlies uh, much of our modern thinking in this area. And if there's such a thing that we could call a, a Protestant ethical system or a Protestant ethics, it's really Kantian ethics. And we'll, we'll explain that uh, today a little bit later. That'll be the second point. Okay. So, uh, there's no doubt, obviously, today the modern world is crumbling, but if there's any system that describes the way we think about morality, it would be Kant's system. Okay. Okay. So he's really kind of the godfather of of the, the Protestant thinking that we have today. Yes. In in some sense, as far as that thinking is got a philosophical underpinning, we okay. could say he's really the he's really the one we have to go to. I, I don't remember who said it, but uh, it was said of Kant that when you enter philosophy now you can either philosophize with Kant or against him, but never without him. Okay. So in that sense, he really did influence a lot uh, in philosophy. Okay, that makes sense. So, so, where, so did Kant come up with these ideas by himself, or where did he get these, where did he start? Right, so he's not, he's not entering the scene, uh, just springing up out of the earth. He's, he's coming already from a context, from a background, and that is really where we have to start. We have to go back a little bit um, to uh, Rene Descartes. So okay. many people have heard the name of Descartes, uh, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, and so on and so forth. So Descartes lived from 1596 to 1650. So he's, he's well before uh, Kant in that sense, who lived from 1724 to 1804. Uh, but Descartes begins to do something that is going to affect philosophy very deeply uh, for all the thinkers that come after him. And that is, he, he begins to introduce what we can call a, a doubt about our knowledge. Okay. And I, I'd like to try to illustrate this because I think it does, a, uh, it does give the context for uh, Kant's own thinking. 
Um, so Descartes says, well, I see that sometimes my senses, my sensation will give me information that I know by another means is actually not true. Okay. And an, an example I can think of immediately is, is um, you know, if we put a straw in a glass of water, the, the straw appears to be broken. Right. And yet we know by another means that the straw is actually it's still in one piece. Okay. And so Descartes is kind of thinking about examples such as this, and he reasons that if my senses can sometimes deceive me, uh, as in that example of the straw, then we, we can't really rely on them as the foundation for certitude in our thinking. And so if we're going to be certain about what we know and the way we are thinking, we can't rest on something that possibly can deceive us. Okay. And so thinking in this way, he begins to ask himself, well, what is actually the foundation of knowledge that we want to call certain knowledge? Uh, if we phrase that question in another way, we could say, um, how do I know that I'm knowing things with certainty? How do I really know that I know? And that, that's a kind of classic, it sounds like a very esoteric philosophical question. But right. in fact, if you, um, if you kind of, well, well, we'll say in a minute how this comes into the modern world. It's actually a very common thought nowadays, but really because of Descartes. So um, Descartes himself is going to propose a way out, he thinks, of this dilemma. But the re it's not interesting for us to go into that right now, but the important thing is to see that the dilemma itself um, begins to cut us off definitively from what is outside of us. And it's kind of echoing already the nominalism, which is saying, I can't really know the thing outside, but I'm going to impose a name on it based on the impression it makes upon me. And Descartes as well is going to say, if I can't really know by my senses, I'm going to have to start in my own head to find the basis of certainty. And that's why he begins with uh, cogito ergo sum, you know. On one end, Father, it seems it seems that this would be a good thing because uh, nominalism, you know, it, it is... Um, to put it simply, I guess it is, it is, I see things and therefore I'm going to put my own idea on how they exist because this is based on my own senses. Um, and so the example you gave about the straw being broken, that seems to be a good philosophical way forward. You know, you, you can't totally rely on your own sense impression because sometimes it is wrong. So therefore you have to accept, um, the reality of what might be there. So it seems like, if anything, that would kind of lead him out of nominalism. But you're saying it kind of does the opposite. It, it only solidifies this nominalism more. Exactly. And that's just to, to show that we can take what's the corresponding or the counter position, let's say, um, to Descartes' position. It's, it's precisely a kind of confidence that we have in our senses. So, uh, and this is, this is something Descartes doesn't tell you, but it, it's really there. So, in order to know that something actually is deceiving me, I have to know that sometimes it doesn't deceive me. Uh, and he'll never say that about the senses, but that is to say another sense, which is the sense of touch, can tell you that straw is in one piece. I see. Just because your sense of sight shows it's broken doesn't mean that you have to throw out the senses wholesale. So we have here to maybe oversimplify a bit, but a case of throwing the baby out with the bathwater that is to say, of course, we need to we need to use our reason as well as our senses, uh, 
but to say that because sometimes the senses seem to suggest something which doesn't agree with other senses or with my reason does not mean that I have to say, okay, we have to wipe out the senses completely. And in, in effect, what Descartes is doing there is, is, again, breaking the connection that we have with the outside world. Okay. At least I know, we could say, at least I know that I touch something. Right. But for Descartes, you say, well, you could be deceived. And right. if you are deceived, then uh, you shouldn't start there at all. Okay. But, but that doesn't follow, I, I think. And so, but there, we're going we're gonna to see a little bit more. If you really break this link between me knowing something outside of me, we're led into pretty dire consequences fairly quickly. That makes sense. Okay. Uh, so then this is, this is a doubt that Descartes is, is casting on basically everything. Right. Well, that's actually, so he thinks he's casting the doubt primarily on sensation, but the whole point about this is that, and philosophers who come after it will bring it up. You say, well, if you're ready to doubt sensation, then maybe we should even go further and doubt other things. And of, of course, the, the joke is, why not doubt that you are doubting? <laughs> are you really doubting? Right, right, exactly. So, so in that sense, if we, if we don't control this question in some way, it's going to lead to a complete skepticism, which is, I can know absolutely nothing. Okay. Uh, but what's funny to me is that um, this idea of doubt, as I mentioned before, has kind of entered our modern thinking, and people take it for something that's quite deep. And the couple examples that I was able to come up with are are, are movies, actually. So, uh, you know, back a seems a long time ago now, but The Matrix came out, and right. what was the what was the the principle, the idea behind The Matrix that you are part of a computer simulation, and you don't know it. And so the idea there behind The Matrix is, you know, when people see that movie, one of the reactions they had was. What if it's true? Right. What if we are just part of a computer simulation? How would we know? And right. this is, it seems to me, a direct uh, link to Descartes' doubting. It's you doubt everything, and you begin with something like coming up with an idea of, oh, wow, maybe we're part of a computer simulation. Um, another example that I, that I can come up with, because th this is played out in the movies pr multiple times, um, it more recently is, is Inception. And so the movie where everybody's dreaming and sharing dreams and all that kind of thing. And uh, for those who have seen the movie, they'll they'll get this reference. But at the at the end of the movie, that the the top keeps spinning and and then the the scene just cuts. It's the end of the movie. And so everybody's reacting to that, saying, "How did I know that everything I just saw wasn't also part of the dream?" And so maybe we are just in this shared dream space where nothing is real. And um, that's Descartes' doubt, really. How would we ever know? How could we be certain? Sure. And of course, once you ask that question, it's, it's, it's in a sense a bad question because even to ask that question, you must know something. Um, you have to. You can't right. even formulate the question without knowing. And so in that sense, he's asking a question that can't really be answered on that level. We'd have to go back to something very, very basic, very first. Do I, do I know anything? Right. Yes, I do. Right. I do. As, as a baby knows something. Last week we were talking, we brought up the example a couple times about, you know, the rabbit hole going down. The, you, once you start going down a path of, of this kind of philosophy, where does it end? And that's, that's what you're saying. It's, uh, you know, once you start doubting something, you're going to doubt everything. And then how can you, where do you start? Where is your, where's the point where all of us can agree on something? And right. if you really follow Descartes and then later Kant, I assume, 
you can't know anything. That that's it. That would be the logical conclusion. Now they try to get out of that, sure. obviously. Um, but ultimately, we can we can uh, urge the same question back at them to say, "How do you know you're really doubting?" Right? That's what. Well, you don't. So so utter skepticism results. Very interesting. So there's this there's this doubting that's happening in our in our own world, um, and and this is <laughs> I, I'm imagining people who are listening to this podcast or, or watching this are going to go to the movies next time and go, ah, that's Descartes. You know, and and we're gonna hopefully they will. We're we're gonna have a a bunch of uh, uh, really nerdy philosophy, uh, uh, (laughs) uh, but that's that's a good thing. Um, So this is then you're saying this is the context really for Kant. This is what kind of drives him. Yes, yes. So so Kant comes after Descartes, and he enters this question of philosophy um, really uh, within the context of Descartes. So. For for Kant, it's taken as a starting point that we, we don't know what is outside of us and then reflect upon upon that. In fact, what we first know is our own knowing, our own experience of the things that are outside. And okay. I'll explain a little bit more. He, he says more about it. He's taken a different position than Descartes, but it's the same basic beginning, which is, uh, which is okay, I don't know what's outside, but I do know my own knowing of that outside. Okay. And then he's going to try to come to some kind of certitude, some kind of system with that as a beginning. Okay. Um, now we know that that's not really going to work, but he's going to try. And it's, it's interesting that, uh, his attempt has kind of got, gotten built into a lot of the things that are going on in the modern world. Um, cause we have to live, we have to have some certainty somewhere. And so, you know, not everybody is going to be as happy with complete skepticism. Uh, sure. that's, that's the bottom line here. And Kant's um, philosophy anyway, is, is it's massive. There's, there's a lot there to tackle and we're not gonna be able to do it just in, in one episode. So, uh, what are the points that we can really focus in on that will help us to understand, you know, cause this, again, this is part of just one larger discussion about the crisis. So what are the things that Kant, um, really focuses on that will help us to understand later? Yes, so that's that's a good point because yeah, it, it, it will be impossible to go through everything, but we can kind of focus on on two particular points, and these two points are going to be kind of if we were to put them in just a single word, the first point would be our knowing, and the second point would be our action. Okay. Uh, so our morality, our ethics, whatever. So the the first point I'm going to go into is how does Kant understand us to know? And then the second point is, how does Kant understand our action? And I'm even not going to take those questions on in their full generality. I'm going to rather say, uh, what what is the contribution, so to speak, that Kant makes to this question of the crisis, first in our knowing and then in our acting? Okay. So those are our two points. Okay. And so we, we can just jump in with regard to um, with regard to knowing, first of all, then. So Kant was, as we said, he was trained in the university, empirical science. He was really impressed by the progress that that science had made in his own time and just before. It had made a lot of progress um, uh, with Newton and, and all those scientists coming before. And so he, be- he begins kind of by posing himself a question, which is, um, why is it that certain sciences, and he gives the examples of logic, mathematics and empirical science, why is it that those sciences have made such easy progress forward 
so that now they seem to be established, they seem to be generating real conclusions and practical applications, they're fruitful, everything like that. Why is it that they have made such progress, whereas philosophy, and most especially higher philosophy, so that is to say, thinking about intangible things like the immortality of the soul, human freedom, the existence of God, why is it that higher philosophy has been entirely plagued with difficulties and disagreements? Mm. And and that's that's his question. Why can this science not go forward if it is a science? And why do the other sciences seem to make such easy progress? And um, we can note in passing that this is similar to a thought that Descartes himself had, which is um, he saw the disagreement among philosophers that came before him as in fact a real problem to calling philosophy a science. And so Descartes in it is kind of classic move. He says, well, you know what? I'm just going to throw away everything and start new. And I'm going to try to found this science as a science. That's Descartes. Whereas if we contrast that with the procedure of, of an Aristotle or a St. Thomas, um, they always look at thinkers who came before them to ask, what can we see that they got right? What can we see that needs improvement? But Descartes sees the very disagreement among philosophers as a sign that nobody's really learned anything. Okay. And Kant kind of follows that and say, well, everybody disagrees about God. So clearly this science hasn't had the same kind of success as mathematical physics. For okay. Example. So, so he begins there with that question and he'll look at the empirical sciences first of all, and, um, he'll look at them to try to see why is it that they have had success. And remember, he begins obviously with this idea that we're, we're not knowing what's outside of us. We're knowing our impression of those things, first of all. And his, uh, the particular, if you want, flavor that he gives to this uh, understanding of the empirical sciences is that he says, our mind works in such a way that it imposes on the experiences it receives uh, very definite ideas. And it's, it's almost as if uh, it's a machine. And the machine receives an input from outside, it manipulates the input, and then it spits out an output. And the output is what you know. So it's a mix of the outside thing and what your mind is doing to it. Okay. It, it's funny because as I say these words, the first thing that comes to my mind is computers, right? right? Right. Computers are kind of that. You stick the input in, it manipulates it, and you get the output. But Kant is kind of saying, you know, your mind is t like that. It's like a machine. And he calls these the, the, he calls them the quote categories, the Kantian categories. So whenever we, whenever we know something, we are knowing the, the mixture of our experience plus what we impose on it. So the question of our knowledge and examination of the empirical sciences is to show us what is it that our mind is doing to these experiences? Can we understand something about, again, the way we're knowing? And so that's, that's the first thing if you, if you want. We're back in this nominalist idea that yes. I'm imposing something on the reality and then knowing that. I can't get out what get at what's outside me. I can only get at um, what I impose on the things. And it's interesting you brought up the the computer analogy because um, one of the one of the tenets of of computer programming and data is if you put in bad data, you'll get bad data out. 
because the computer doesn't really know, uh, you know, whether it's good data or bad. Um, And so if you put in, you know, horrible information into an Excel spreadsheet, even you're going to get a bad result. And there is kind of a parallel there. Maybe I'm way oversimplifying it, Father, but if you put in bad data into your mind, that is a a wrong philosophy or a wrong way of thinking, you're going to get bad data out of your mind as well. It's the same sort of thing. Yeah, that's 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 certainly true. And you're going to see the the more we adopt this bad philosophy, the more we come up with bad conclusions, right, you know, right. and stuff, stuff starts to break down. Yeah. Um, we'll see that. We'll see that. I think, especially with the Kantian ethics in a, in a, in a few minutes here, sure. but, um, so anyway, so anyway, uh, Kant examines that empirical science. Then he turns obviously to philosophy, higher philosophy. And, um, what he notices is that when you're talking about, um, freedom, human freedom, immortality of the soul, existence of God, you're always dealing with things that have to entirely surpass our immediate experience. Nothing in my immediate experience is going to um, show me immediately God. I don't I don't find God out there in the world. Uh, I don't find my soul. If I medically examine my body, I can't see where's my soul. So he says, you know, we're dealing with something that's really beyond our immediate experience. So that's the first difference from empirical science. I can, I can run experiments on falling bodies and and acceleration and mass and all that kind of thing but i can't do those experiments on god so we're dealing with something that's beyond my immediate experience so kant says but you can't know what's outside your mind right you can only know your own knowing but if you can't add your experience of stuff then the only way for you to derive any certainty about these questions is if you can deduce them from your mind alone So if you're going to examine your own thinking and your own, what he calls pure reason, so reason alone, your mind, your your thinking, if you examine that and you can definitively show that God must exist or morality, uh, uh, human freedom and morality exist or these kind of things, then you're fine. We, we, We land on certitude. But if you can't do that, then they're really unknowable by your reason. And so this is his thought experiment. Then he says, well, let me try. Can I deduce God just from my own thinking? And so he comes up with uh, arguments on both sides of the question. He says, does God exist? I can make this argument. Does God not exist? I can make this argument. And he comes up with these opposite arguments. He calls them the antinomies of pure reason. So these opposite positions. And because he sees that with every one of these questions, he can argue convincingly on both sides. He says, well, I guess we can't know it. Hmm. And what he means by that is not that, remember, he's a good Lutheran. He does believe in God, but he precisely says, it's my belief. It's not coming from my reason. And so what he concludes is that pure reason cannot deduce the, the existence of God or the immortality of the soul by itself. But human reason can see that it is a question because it can argue on both sides. Right. So if it is a question, but reason can't solve it, something else has to solve it. What's that going to be? Faith. Uh-huh. So now we have a break, a definitive break, which is Luther was saying that. But remember, Luther, Luther said reason is bad. Right. But Kant systematizes it now and says reason sees that this is a question, can't decide the question, so has to be faith. And for Kant, then, he says... He's emptying out reason to make room for faith. And so in that sense, he he kind of is saying, 
I'm doing religion a, ri a big service here. I'm showing you that nobody can disprove the existence of God. So you're free to believe in the existence of God. But precisely that that introduces this this break between faith and reason. We're always going to say faith and reason agree. They right. have to be uh, in harmony. But for Kant, he says, no, in order to protect faith, we have to show that reason can't touch it. Okay. It can't have anything to do with it. And that is the first time we see enshrined Luther's thought, reason is bad. You have to have faith, blind confidence in the existence of God, in your soul, in your freedom, all this kind of thing. So it, it, it conforms very well to Luther's own thought, we can say. And maybe we can go a step further and say and, and, and realize that we've got now a, a, a duality, a dualism in man, which is very bad because man is now I'm supposed to be one being, you know, right. with one mind and one thought. And but now I'm two. I, I'm the man of faith on the weekends <laughs> and I'm the man of reason during the week and that the never the twain shall meet, you know, right. <laughs> reason right. cannot touch faith and faith can't touch reason. Kant really thinks he's, he's done a great service to religion. We see he's, he's broken something there and, and he's, he's taken the break that was in Luther, but he's given a kind of philosophical background to it now. It's, so that's, it's, it's very, it's very dangerous, very it, problematic. It, it almost seems like Luther was, was putting together this, these theories kind of based on his own gut feeling based on his own, uh, issues that he had with, um, exactly. You yep. know, and, and then, and then Descartes comes in and Kant comes in and says, well, but here's the framework to make it philosophically sound. Um, and obviously Luther's already dead, but they, they're, they're giving credence to this mode of thought that beforehand was just kind of a, a feeling beforehand to water yeah, it really down. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. And, okay. and that, that's why it's, it's Kant is so important in this movement because he really does, I think I used the word before, he really does enshrine the thought of Luther. Now the thought of Luther has a kind of uh, rigor to it um, that 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 could be convincing, you know, to somebody. It's also um, interesting, Father, I, I you said, you, sorry, but you were saying that, no, you no, know, go, go ahead, sorry. that, that our, our identity is, is split between, like you said, a faith, faith person on the weekend and, and a reason person during the week. Um, yeah. That seems really similar to separation of church and state. I mean, to really go way down the path, but is this kind of where this starts, this idea that you can separate the two and, and man can have these kind of dualities? Yes, I think it's it's not the only thing to say there, right. certainly, but it definitely plays a part. Okay. And if we were to fast forward a little bit, um, that's the last point I want to mention on this, this first uh, consideration of Kant. If we fast forward to St. Pius X, so Paschendi, the, the encyclical, the great encyclical against modernism, um, we can see the very um, starting point of modernism for St. Pius X, what he identifies is what he calls uh, agnosticism. And I, I have a quotation here. I looked this up specifically to really make a connection with the current crisis. Uh, okay. here's, here's a quotation from the encyclical. So he says the following, the Pope, according to this teaching, so modernism, human reason is confined entirely within the field of phenomena, that is to say, to things that are perceptible to the senses and in the manner in which they are perceptible. It has no right and no power to transgress these limits. Hence, it is incapable of lifting itself up to God and of recognizing his existence even by means of visible things. From this, it is inferred that God can never be the direct object of science. 
Now that's a a page from Kant's playbook, you know, it's really, Kant would agree with that statement 100%. Mm -hmm. And that is what St. Pius X is saying is the foundation of modernism. And again, another aspect of modernism is going to be this duality in man, these different roles. Uh, The modernist says we have man as believer, man as historian, man as scientist. He's all these different personalities and they never can mix. And and this is going to be a fundamental tenet of modernism, which is why it's going to be called also by St. Pius X the sewer of all heresies, because it's really lots of errors are going to spawn from this one error. Right. Well, we're going to be speaking with Father Robinson, I believe, in four weeks about about Pashendi. Uh, and so we're going to go into some more depth right. on that. But thank you for, for kind of giving us this this bridge uh, bridge between the two. That's um, that's excellent. Uh, and, and I've started reading Pashendi and it's difficult. So at least for me, yes. uh, I, All right. I bet Father Robinson will make it clear. I'm okay. sure. All right. Good. He's, he's very clear about those things. So okay. yeah, that'll be great. But yeah, right. we already see this connection. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously with the crisis too, which has been tainted, affected by modernism for sure. Okay. Um, so anyway, we can move on to the second point now yes. that I want to emphasize about Kant. And in a way, this one I think is going to perhaps have a little bit more traction People are going to understand a little bit more because it's more uh, influencing our current thought. Um, well, it's more tangibly influencing. Okay. It. And that's that's about Kant's morality. So remember, we just cut ourselves off from knowing anything definitive about human freedom, the immortality of the soul, and the existence of God. So reason cannot approach these topics. It can't touch them. And so a problem immediately arises for Kant, who, remember, is a is a moral man. He's not he's not living wantonly. He's not an immoral uh, 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 alcoholic or anything like that. He's he's a very moral lifestyle. But he asks himself now, well, what's the foundation for morally good and morally evil actions? Or is morality merely a convention? Or does morality simply not exist? Now that's a question because you can't found it upon, I've got an immortal soul and I have to save it. I can't found it on God making a law because I can't know that by my reason. I can't found it on human freedom because I, I can't I can't understand those topics with my reason alone. Maybe faith is going to give something, but Kant wants something that's going to protect morality even without faith. And so he begins to, to, to look a little bit about this. And this is where you know, really you have that, we we perhaps see better now that his thought is going to destroy morality as well. And I think that's clear. Right. Why didn't he see that? Why did he think he could find a way out? I think simply because of his upbringing. So as I said, he was a moral man. Uh, There's a story told about him that's that's quite funny, actually. And that was, he used to go out for a walk uh, every day at 5 p.m. I think it was 5 p.m., 5 o'clock. And his neighbors always saw him and he was always exactly on time to the point that they would set their clock based on when Kant showed up for his walk. So so that's how structured this man was. He was extremely disciplined. And I think that led him to think there's got to be something because my whole life is based on this. So how do I solve this problem of of morality? Um, And he's got another motivation for looking at it, and that is another contemporary philosopher, um, well, I should say another philosopher that's around the same time as him. And that, that philosopher's name is David Hume. We don't have time to go into him right now, but, but Hume said this about morality. 
I have a quotation here. He says, morals excite passions and produce or prevent actions. Reason itself is utterly impotent in this particular. Hmm. The rules of morality, therefore, are not conclusions of reason. Hmm. And that's Hume saying morality has nothing to do with reason. It's all about feeling. And Kant sees that and he says, that can't be the case. I don't want to say that. I have to find some way to found morality on reason. And so he's he's kind of stuck between um, these two positions, right? So on the one hand, he doesn't have any objective foundation or he doesn't see it immediately because we got rid of God in some sense. We've got rid of of, of the immortality of the soul. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to say, well, it's pure sentiment. So how is he going to get out of this problem? Now, we know there's not really a way to get out, but uh, he's going to try. He's going to try to get out of it. And so how does he escape? And this is the important point that I want to highlight. Um, he's got to have recourse to reason. But again, he chooses to found morality on what he calls pure reason. I've got to be able to deduce morality from my reason alone without reference to anything else. So reason examining itself should be able to come up with a moral law. And if I can do that, then I've saved morality because all men will have to make the same conclusions based on their reason. So if he can found it on pure reason, the way our mind works, then he can found it, he thinks, on on a, a solid foundation. So this this foundation, Kant is going to call the categorical imperative. Okay. So it's a it's a there are a lot of there's a lot of terminology in Kant that's very uh, esoteric sounding. Sure. This is one of the terms, categorical imperative. So we have to explain that. He he says the following to to define the categorical imperative. He says this, and I'm quoting him, and then I'll explain the quote. It's a short quote. So he says this to man: act only on that maxim through which you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. So I'll say that one more time because it's kind of complicated. Sure. Act only on that maxim through which you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. Okay. So, so in, this, in this context, go ahead. So sorry. if it's something that would be good for everyone to do, then you can do it, and that makes it a moral action. Yes, precisely. Okay. Precisely. So we'll, well, I'm going to give a particular example. Uh, in his de- definition, though, what we mean by maxim is simply a rule or a principle. So the idea is your action, as you said, in fact, your action will be good if it follows a rule that you can reasonably apply to all men all the time. Okay. And. It's actually quite a clever attempt. Yeah. It's not going to work, but it's a very clever attempt, and it, it almost sounds reasonable. It, it's almost like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's right. almost like that, you know? But just to give an example, um, so suppose I'm faced with the possibility of lying in order to obtain an advantage. Uh, Kant says the following. If you choose to lie, so if I choose to lie, then in effect, I would be saying – People can lie whenever they want, as long as they can obtain an advantage. So that would be the maxim by which I would be acting. And if that applies really to all men, Kant says you're going to run into an absurdity, a contradiction, because if everybody could always lie whenever there's an advantage, 
nobody would ever believe anybody else and lying would produce zero advantage because everybody would just suspect you. Right. So there's actually hidden in there a contradiction in terms, which is if everybody could lie, no advantage accrues. So, so that's what Kant would say. There you can see that lying is morally evil because if you follow the maxim and make it a universal rule, it's going to, uh, it can't apply to all men all the time. Okay. And so he says the opposite must be true, which is we should never lie. That's the maxim. And that can be applied to all men at all the time. Or if you want, we should never lie just to obtain an advantage. So that can be applied to all men all the time. So that's your maxim. So that's the categorical imperative. And that means that if you don't lie, you, you make a morally good action. And you've founded this morality on something that's universal to all men. Um, so that's, that's his position about the categorical imperative. So everything for him in morality has to be reduced to that. So he, he is coming to the right conclusion in this example. Uh, he's yes. coming to the right conclusion, but the methods to which he's, or to which, yeah, I guess he's, he's getting to it are totally, totally wrong because he's ignoring the fact that there is a, an objective morality to use a, objective and subjective terms, but he's saying, uh, instead, this is, this is morally good because it applies to all men, not just because it is morally right. good. Right. Because reason alone can deduce I see. that, uh, there's no contradiction there or that it applies to all men, but right. So his conclusion is correct. Lying is bad. Right. You should never lie, but the means of getting to it are really a disaster. And that, that I, that's what I'd like to go into now okay. because this connects most closely with uh, what we're talking about, what we've been talking about. So for Kant, then, um, morality is primarily a question or becomes primarily a question of, of your duty. Now, now why is that? Um, and it sounds good, you know, morality is about duty. We, we would agree with that to some extent, but he goes a bit further than that. So he says, you know, because the categorical imperative demands that we be able to see the morality of an action from pure reason with no reference to a goal or to consequences, therefore, in examining an action, we can never look to its goal, we can never look to its consequences to talk about it being good or evil. We have to look at pure reason alone. So it's no longer valid for Kant to say something like this. If you don't want to displease God, don't lie. Kant would say, I can't know that because I can't know anything about God, first of all. But secondly, that's not a categorical imperative. That's a hypothetical. You're looking at the end that you want to achieve, but morality is not based on the end. It's based on what you can deduce from pure reason. Another example, if you want to be happy, don't lie. Kant says can't do that either because that's a consequence that would come about from your action. It's not deduced from pure reason. Morality would have no basis then because then I could say, well, happiness for me is something different than for you, so I can do whatever I want. And Kant right. says, I don't want that. I don't want Hume's conclusion that morality is just sentiment. So he says you, you have to ignore consequences. You have to ignore the goal. And if that's the case, then the highest morality you can do is to follow your duty, even if, or we might say, especially if you don't like it. <laughs> because if you like it, then you might be doing it because of a consequence that comes about and you're founding morality on something that is not solid, according to Kant. Right. Or again, if you're looking at a goal that you can achieve, 
You're not founding morality on something that's solid. So the only solid foundation for morality, the highest morality that there can be, do your duty even if, and especially if, you dislike it. That is for him that the high point of morality. And just to emphasize this, so this, I have a quotation from him and I found, I was very happy to find this quotation before doing this podcast because I hope that it's a little bit shocking, you know, okay. in the sense of we have to see that this position leads Kant himself to admit something that I think most people would not admit. So, so here's his, here's his quotation. So he says the following to set before children as a pattern actions that are called noble magnanimous with a view to captivating them by infusing an enthusiasm for such actions is to defeat our end it is nothing but moral fanaticism and exaggerated self-conceit that is infused into the mind by exhortation to actions as noble sublime and magnanimous by which men are led into delusion that it is not duty, that is, respect for the law that constitutes the determining principle of their actions. So basically he's saying every time you try to teach your children to do something because it's noble, because it's generous, because it's a a deep and important and a beautiful action, you're destroying morality. That's what he said. So you can never act because this is noble or because this is generous. You can never do that. You have to only act because it's your duty, period. Because it's the law. Do it because it's the law, period. End of story for Khan. And, and really when we read that, we say, that's, that's insanity. Right. That's insanity. Right. Because we, we precisely encourage children to act because it is noble. But Khan's saying, you're, you're deluding them. You're, you're actually destroying morality. It's moral fanaticism and exaggerated self-conceit. That's what he says. And we do, and um, we do as Catholics, we do follow that there is a, a duty that we, uh, that we should uh, attain to and that we should, you know, respect. Um, but we, but we find the magnanimity and we find the nobility in following the law. Uh, but he's saying, you know, separate exactly. those two. Those, those are not, those, yep. those are you totally have to, you have to do it. You have to do it simply because it's the law. And actually that brings up a good point because we can we can make the we can make a contrast between, let's say, a position of another philosopher, this time pagan philosopher, Aristotle, and Kant's own position on morality. So what's what's the comparison here? Well, for for Aristotle, the high point of morality is the virtuous man, the man who acts in everything by virtue. But for Aristotle, that virtuous man, it's not only that he's doing his duty, but more particularly, he finds doing his duty pleasant. He finds it joyful. He finds it easy for him to do. And so a lot of times we're on the level of what Aristotle would call the continent man. So we do the right thing, but it's a struggle. We, we, we fight our way. We're, we're tempted to do the opposite. That Aristotle says it's good, but it's not the best. The best is actually to do the right thing and have it be pleasant while you're doing it and have it bring you joy and have it be your your happiness to do that. And so for Aristotle, that high point of the moral life is something that's a joyful life, a life we want to live. Contrast that with Kant. The high point of the moral life is you're going to do your duty and it's going to hurt and it's going to be painful and you're going to hate it, but all the better because then you're not acting 
by moral fanaticism. Because oh. if you're doing it because you like it, uh, you're doing it for yourself. It's selfish. Wow. Very interesting. And, and, and that's, that's crazy, right? I mean, we can't live that way. Right. Uh, maybe if you're Kant and, and you take a walk at 5 p.m. every day because <laughs> it's your duty, you can try. But most right. people, they, they have to find something that's pleasant. And, and that's, it's actually human to find that. Um, and that, that's for Aristotle, that's really the case. And we would say, you brought up Catholicism, we would say the high point is not just doing your duty. It's, it's being happy. God wants you to be happy doing the right thing. And doing the right thing is the best way to be happy. No right. other way. It, so, his, his philosophy is uh, almost so make someone, make someone a slave to, to duty, uh, at the expense of any sort of, well, like you said, any sort of joy or happiness and, and not that joy or happiness is right. our end, but we know as Catholics that we can attain joy and happiness by doing the right thing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and that, that's the thing is there's, there's a, there's a connection then between, as you say, between your end, which we would say is to see God face to face, but, and joy, that is the highest joy for us. So the, the very attaining God, which is not selfish is also the thing that will bring us complete happiness. And that's not selfish. There's nothing selfish about that is what we would say. Right. Um, but I, I want to emphasize that for Kant, the position goes to the point of what we would say, a, a complete moralism. So what do I mean by moralism? Morality is no longer based upon a truth that I can know and that is objective, to use that term, or outside of myself. Now, actions are no longer good because they conform themselves to some kind of uh, truth that is outside me. Rather, actions are good simply because they follow the law. And the law has no reason of being outside of itself. The law exists for its own sake, we might say. That's the pure reason is, is coming up with seeing the law, let's say. So law and law alone make goodness and truth and morally good actions. And anytime you want to ask why you follow the law, you're destroying morality. Never ask why, right? Oh, you just follow the law. And maybe this is a whole nother rabbit hole, but then what would Kant say about why laws exist in the first place. Like it, it almost seems like we're following, like you said, we're following the law for the law's sake, but then what, how do, how do you, know, I'm yeah, confused on, on, on what he would why? think it on that, but that's probably a whole nother, like, like I said, in a whole nother rabbit hole. It is. But I also want to emphasize that the fact that there are inconsistencies here uh, is to be expected that's fair. because he begins <laughs> from the wrong place. And that, right. and that's the thing in this, in his ethical system, the inconsistencies are, are all over the place and he doesn't see it as well. He thinks he's kind of found a way to get out of it. Mm -hmm. But really, I think what we have there is his whole formation as a man and his whole, you know, parents telling him to act a certain way is influencing his thought here. So he doesn't realize the very conclusions his thought leads to. He doesn't come to those conclusions because right. he's accustomed himself to living uh, with some order and some structure and everything like that. It's right. a very, it's a very interesting case study for that. So once you, once you remove the society and the order that's there imposing itself on men, the ideas leave you no foundation for morality. And so, of course, morality goes out the window. Right. Do whatever you want. It's right. fine. And, and so taking you know, wanna, the joy wanna, out of, sorry, father, but take, taking the joy out of things, that seems, that seems like it's a very, I mean, looking back to the founding of our nation, it's, that seems very Puritan. It seems like, oh, well, you, you can't, you can't be doing good if you are also having fun. <laughs> yeah, that, right. That, that's exactly it. And, and in fact, in fact, that's kind of where I want to go because the, 
right now, I hope this system sounds crazy, but I want to try to give a few examples of how it's entered the thought, and especially in this country. And hopefully, the people that are listening to this, watching this, can uh, make a connection here. And uh, so my first example is, well, maybe a Puritan example uh, more than anything, but um, in this country, we had prohibition. Mm-hmm. So um, no alcohol, dry counties, and and that kind of thing. And certainly that uh, was an immediate conclusion of Puritanism, but notice how well it fits with Kantian morality. So everybody knows that drinking alcohol is something pleasant. So it's 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 pleasing to us. But Kant says we can't act morally for the sake of pleasure. So if drinking alcohol is pleasant, then it's inherently suspect. Why? Because you might do it for the pleasure, which won't be moral. So if you do it, you're somehow acting against your duty, which is to follow the law because it's the law, not because it's pleasant. Therefore, drinking alcohol, bad. So get rid of it. And there we have prohibition in this country. Um, Now, again, it's going to be a consequence ultimately as well of Puritanism, maybe more directly of that. But that fits a Kantian moral system. If you allow yourself a pleasure, you might be doing it for the sake of the pleasure, not by a categorical imperative. Because how can you make a a general rule that men should always seek pleasure? (laughs) That's not true. Right. So so for Kant, it contradicts the basis of morality. So we can see a consequence then is um, if you're drinking alcohol, you're probably a bad man. And, and, you know, depending on where you live, you're going to see this more, more strongly in the people than, than elsewhere. Uh, as a priest, I can tell you when I'm in certain places buying alcohol and other, other priests have the same question, you get the question from the people, huh, you guys drink? It's like, can you do that? You know, are you allowed to do that? And uh, we want to respond to them, well, well, of course we are, because drinking is pleasant, and God created alcohol, and I can worship God by recognizing the goodness in creation. But I know if I say that, it's kind of going to be lost on them, right. because in their mind, this is something that only um, alcoholic people do, you know, because they're immoral. They're not following morality. Mm. Um, so it's a striking example. I think to take a second example along the same lines— um, you see this advertisement sometimes on the billboards or on uh, on desserts. You see um, sinfully delicious or <laughs> so good that it's sinful. Right. And this is, a, this is, of course, again, another Puritan example. But think about it in Kantian terms. Any advantage that accrues to me because of my action makes that action morally suspect. Because then I'm going to possibly be doing it for the end and not because I can just conclude to it by my pure reason. So therefore, what makes me feel good and what's pleasant is actually immediately suspect. So that this chocolate bar, right, is a sale point, right? right. This chocolate bar is so good that it's got to be a sin, right? Right. Because as we all know, good actions are not pleasant. Right. That's, that's a again, a page right out of Kant's playbook. Um, now, I mean, nobody can live that way, right? It's right. it's awful. And so, what do you what do you do? And you mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, this idea of having fun. You get another kind of um, duality that happens in man, which is having fun and doing pleasant things, such as having a nice meal or having a drink or whatever, is is disconnected from moral action. Right. So, you've got to do your duty, but then once you do your duty, 
yeah, go have a little bit of fun. But finally, having fun can't be put under this this idea of duty, right? Having fun is something you do separately, um, you know, to make your life livable. But your duty and your morality is what you do that's not pleasant. And so again, we get the, the phenomenon of the the Sunday religion. You know, you right. go to church on Sunday and you dress up uh, and you start your shirt and everything like that, and you appear good and you you're sad because it's your duty. And uh, then you do that, but then on Monday you go to the bar, and then all bets are off. It's not your duty. It's not under that. You can have fun. Right. And so the idea that one could do pleasant things and also worship God with them is very very foreign to people. There's, and I think very foreign in, in this country, especially too. There, there seems to be also this connection and, and maybe I'm trying to tie two things together that don't really belong. Uh, but there seems to be this connection also with, with Luther, where he says sin boldly, he's making an excuse that man can go and sin and that's okay. Uh, with, with Kant, we're also doing the same thing where you do your duty and you do what's, what's right. And that's, that's putting your moral hat on. Uh, but then you can yes. go and sin boldly yes. and that doesn't really matter because that's not having anything to do with your morality. Whereas a Catholic would say you can go out for dinner and you can go out for a drink as long as you are also doing, but it's all under one umbrella of being a decent right. person and following the commandments and so forth. And, and this right. happiness is not, is not disconnected. Right. Right. That's exactly right. And so, and again, for the Catholic, that's the point is that, God has said to him, go be happy. Now, how do you be happy? By virtue. So you're not going to sure. go um, do things to an excessive degree. Why? Because that's not going to make you happy. Right. Um, but you are going to do things for the sake of happiness. Sure. But Kant precisely is saying, when you put your moral hat on, you can't be thinking about happiness or pleasure. And I think, again, for Kant, he doesn't see that this is going to be the absolute destruction of morality or the, the fragmentation, the duality that it creates in man. But we do have that phenomenon that, you know, when men go out and have a drink, they feel like they're doing something that's wrong, you know. Right. And that's why when they see a priest, they say, well, you can't drink because I know it's wrong. I do it anyway because I have to live. But right. You're some higher being. So you would never do that. <laughs> Um, whereas what we want to say is no, we do drink and, but we drink to, in moderation because it's good and because it is pleasant. And because God has said, I command you to be happy. You know, that's, that's what you have to act for is happiness. Sure. So it's really, again, this other fragmentation, um, maybe one final example, just to, just to bring this back into the religious sphere, because this affects us as Catholics too, in some way we've been soaked in this same thinking, whether we, whether we like it or not. And that is, uh, you know, when you're giving a catechism class or that kind of thing, you, you often ask people, um, what is what is it that makes an action more meritorious? So God's going to give you a reward if you do this. And many people will say, well, the harder the action is, the more meritorious it is. And that seems to be reasonable at first, because if it's harder for me to do it, I've got to be earning more by doing it. But this is a kind of relict or if you want a, a Kantian thinking in some sense, why? Because the principle of merit, we would say, is actually charity, your love of God. And to, to prove that very simply, when Our Lady cleans the house at Nazareth, uh -huh. she gains more merit than a martyr who dies. Now, it's harder to die than it is, and to die well, than it is to sweep, sweep a room. But our lady had more love of God and love of God is the principle of merit. 
And precisely because God has said to love him, not just to do your duty. Why do you do your duty? Because you love God. Right. And so ultimately the principle of merit is that love, but we seem to think in our mind, oh yeah, it's difficulty. So when I'm doing my duty and it's really hard and I hate it, that's when I'm earning the most merit. But the Catholic faith would say, not necessarily. It's when you're doing it with the greatest love that you gain the most merit. And so this, I, I, I hope for some people, this is a, a realization. Sure. Uh, because we have to do things by love, not because we hate them and don't want to do them. Right. Or you also have the, the beautiful example of St. Teresa of the Little Flower, you know, doing her duty. And she said, well, <laughs> right up here, she said that I can't do the same things that St. Joan of Arc did. Uh, she was heroic. Uh, but in many, you know, the church, I think, has said, if we can compare the two saints, that St. Teresa of the Little Flower is almost greater than St. Joan of Arc in the sense that she did her, her duties with, with love and charity, uh, not because they were hard or difficult. Right. Exactly. So that, so that for us, that, that's the idea. The principle of merit is that love of God, because that's, what, that's why, we, why we do anything that we do as Catholics. Sure. Um, so it's, it's, uh, I think it's important to see this and to start to recognize this pattern of thought that we have, because it, it casts its shadow, if you want, even on our Catholic religion, and Certainly. it makes us misunderstand things. Um, whereas, and God, you know, you got to imagine he's sitting up there saying, no, I, no, I created you. To be happy. <laughs> That's why I created you. So be happy. Right. Um, and, and of course, of course we have, we sin and we have to fight against things. And sometimes things are going to be legitimately difficult, but in our thinking, we have to say, well, the high point for me is to be like the saints where for them, it's a joy to be with God. It's a joy to do their, their duty and everything like that because they love and um, that's that that's the fundamental point here. Um, but if we want to just to just to wrap this up, uh, then we see that in both these points of Kant's system, we see precisely that as systematization of Luther's thought. So uh, we made we made the connections in both points with Luther. But this is really what's going on here. It's it's internally consistent with itself, which you couldn't really say about Luther. Um, but it's entirely disconnected from common sense. And as we saw, it's it's starting from a from a point that's going to lead to a real duality and fragmentation in man. And and once again, going back to that, so connecting with modernism, um, for the modernist, that's precisely what's going on. You're man as believer and man as scientist, two different things. Man as a moral being and man as living his day-to-day -day life, two different things. Uh -huh. Every time with modernism, you have this breaking apart of man instead of an integration. Right. And so I really think uh, Kant's ideas lead us more or less directly to that. And, and that's why we've taken the time to go into this. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, Father, thank you so much for, for this time and, and for helping us to understand it. It's, um, I've, I've learned a ton just in these last two, uh, this episode and then the pre one previous. Um, it, and it kind of clarify things. Oh, this is why we do things. And this is why our, and, and like right. you said, our own faith and our own understanding of things as Catholics is really kind of drenched in a lot of this Protestant thinking and this, uh, yes. yes, it's, it's amazing. So thank you. Yes. Yep. Very good. Well, I think we're, right, we're going to be giving you a break here in the next uh, few weeks. We have Father Ruder <laughs> okay. coming up, uh, and then Father Franks, yes. and then Father Robinson. So I think it'll be at least five, six weeks or so until we have you back. But um, okay. thank you so much. Until then, uh, enjoy your enjoy your time. And uh, uh, what are you teaching right now at the seminary again? So I'm teaching. Uh, we call it dogmatic theology. So okay. theology. 
and then also philosophy. And I actually teach that portion of philosophy, which Kant was critiquing. Oh, okay. So uh, we call we call it metaphysics, but the highest part of philo- philosophy. So concluding with the demonstration of the existence of God, but we follow um, St. Thomas Aquinas, of course, in his uh, philosophy there so that we can prepare the seminarians to learn his theological thought as well. Okay, well, So those are my two classes there. Well, enjoy your time, and we can say that because we're not Puritans, right? (laughs) Right, exactly, and I will enjoy it. Thank you. All right, thanks, Father. All right, God bless you. Thank you for listening to and watching Episode 3 of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX Podcast. Next Thursday, we're excited to welcome, for the first time, Father Stephen Reuter, He'll be joining us for a two-part discussion on liberalism. And then coming up in the next four to five weeks, we'll chat with Father Jonathan Loop, Father Paul Robinson, and Father Paul Isaac Franks. If you have a question on the topic of the crisis, please feel free to ask it at sspxpodcast.com slash crisis, and we will do our best to have it answered during the appropriate episode. And we could definitely use your support. Please share this episode with someone who you think might enjoy it. And if they don't know what a podcast is, please show them so they can take advantage of all our episodes. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of 5 or 10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this crisis in the church project. Until next week, thank you for listening and God bless you.